In the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show, we're going to offer up some intriguing thoughts about our economy and the possibility of our economy being restructured in a fairly dramatic, um, some might say even a, a, a drastic way, to create an entirely different kind of economy. One which, uh, in the opinion of our morning show guest, would serve all people much more uh, equitably. And it would serve, in his mind, as an alternative to capitalism and socialism, which often are offered up as uh, the two choices open to us. My guest is Ted Howard, and he is the co-founder and president of the Democracy Collaborative. And for almost two decades now, this nonprofit uh, has been exploring the possibility of creating what he likes to call a democratic economy. Democratic small d. It has nothing to do with the democratic political party, but rather has to do with the fundamental notions of democracy. And we will talk with him about this uh, as he uh, expresses his ideas in a book called The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. And uh, the book is published by Barrett Kohler. And uh, it, it, is a, uh, it is a co-production, shall we say, of uh, Marjorie Kelly, and the, uh, who is also with the Democracy Collaborative. Ted Howard, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So, 19 years ago, you began this uh, nonprofit research and development lab, uh, but it must have been ahead of that somehow that you began to be intrigued by this possibility of the creation of an entirely different kind of economic system. Uh, tell us what initially prompted this interest on your part. Well, my whole career um, has really been spent in, um, I guess you could call it social justice advocacy. I've written a number of books and lots of speaking and worked on a wide variety of issues from community organizing. I worked in the United States Senate for a couple of years. I lived overseas in India working and Africa, working on international development and uh, hunger issues around the globe. And um, uh, when I returned to the United States about 25 years ago from my international work, um, I really looked at the country and, and looked at what was taking place in terms of the escalating wealth inequality that our, our system is suffering under that's really off the charts these days, um, how many people are being left behind, and not just traditionally poor people, but working class, middle class people like my parents. Um, and, and I started to wonder, is, is the problem we're facing simply that we're not electing the right people? Or is it simply that we need some better policies or maybe a little different regulation tax? Or is there something at the heart of our system, our, what some have called this kind of hyper-casino capitalism that we live under, is there something at the heart of the system that is consistently producing outcomes that are really not in our best interest? And that led me and my uh, co-founder of the Democracy Collaborative, Gar Alpervitz, who, by the way, grew up in Racine, Wisconsin, not far from you. Huh. Um, wow. <laughs> and uh, Gar and I started really exploring um, is there a, a different way, a fundamentally different kind of economic system, not state socialism, 
but not what we have that could be producing better outcomes for all of us. And that led us to establish the Democracy Collaborative, first at the University of Maryland, and then eventually become an independent organization. And I'm just curious, you you called it uh, the Democracy Collaborative, and from the start, did you have that name attached to it, the, a, a, the, the notion of a democratic economy, or did that come a little later? Well, that was uh, right at the heart of what we were doing at the very beginning. Uh, we called ourselves the Democracy Collaborative, first the term collaborative, because if you're going to be, bring about large order change, what Dr. Martin Luther King called bending the arc of history toward a more just society. That's, you know, one organization, you know, we're a small organization of 40 people. Um, uh, you know, one organization can't turn that tide. You really need to have lots of partners in that. So that's the collaborative part. But the, the democracy in our name is was really looking at not so much voting patterns, and voting is very important and everyone should get out to vote, but but that that we've separated the idea of political democracy from the notion of our economy. In other words, our founders brought principles of democracy into government 200 some years ago, even though it was imperfect, everyone knows, but they didn't extend them to the economy and the workplace. And we felt that that was the next evolution of the American experiment. Right. So uh, in other words, we we democratized our government or chose a, a, a democratic government, but we have never democratized the economy. One of the th- things you set up as a what you call a stark contrast uh, between what you envision and what we have right now is that we live under an extractive economy. And I suspect that you find both um, capitalism and socialism to be examples of an extractive economy. So first of all, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but then explain uh, briefly what an extractive economy is and uh, and how your notion of a democratic economy differs from that. You know, we've all grown up thinking there's just two competing political and economic systems in the world. You either got the old-style Soviet, centralized, bureaucratic, undemocratic state, and we know that didn't work very well, or you've got what we've got now, which is, a, uh, you know, Joseph Stiglitz, the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, calls our kind of economy an economy of, by, and for the 1%. And both of them really extract value. They can be productive. You know, the president is fond of saying that, you know, the greatest economy the world's ever seen, the GDP is up, the stock market's at an all-time high. And that's all true. But the gains of it don't go to the people who've done put in all the labor, like the good people of Racine or my town, Cleveland, Ohio. They're being sucked up and concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer. So one statistic, and we could spend the whole time on statistics, but, but just one statistic. Since the Great Recession of a decade ago, uh, the economy has rebounded, but 95% of all the income gains of the last decade have gone to just 1% of the people. So that today we have, you know, three people, and your listeners will know who they are, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, who own more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans, 160 million. So, so our economy is productive, but it's extracting wealth out of our communities 
and our pockets and concentrating it in fewer hands. And so our book, The Making of a Democratic Economy, is saying, look, we don't need to live in an extractive economy, whether it's state socialism or what we've got now. We can have a democratic economy that produces very different outcomes and doesn't concentrate wealth in the way this one does. Hmm. It's probably important for us to give you a chance to spell out the seven principles of a democratic economy that uh, you explore quite uh, thoroughly uh, in your book. Explain what those seven principles are and, in a sense, how they would work in the real world. I'm happy to. And first, let me just say that <laughs> while this is a book that has economy in its name, <laughs> I don't want uh, uh, people to think this is a turgid academic prose. Um, it's obviously well-researched and footnotes and all that, but it's really storytelling. And And our view is the economy has been sort of relegated to this thing of just numbers and markets out of our control. And it, it's the only value it has is uh, what the, the, this idea of what's called maximizing shareholder value. In other words, the whole purpose of these companies and boards of directors and managers and so forth is to make sure the stock price goes up so that the investors have the most uh, return on their capital. Um, the problem is, really, very few people in America own any meaningful amount of stock. So we argue that a democratic economy actually is based on values, not just, you know, numbers flying around. And some of these values, for instance, are um, the the principle of, of broad democratic ownership. In other words, we're in favor of companies that are working in the market, but we're in favor of employee-owned companies cooperatives, of course, there's a big history of co-ops in Wisconsin, worker cooperatives, uh, B corporations, land trusts, public banks. There are all these different forms of ownership that are more broadly held and locally rooted and therefore produce better results for our communities. Another principle is place. You know, the big global markets don't really care about our communities. They see them just as sites to extract wealth from, just like uh, oil fields are sites to extract petroleum from. We say place is really important, that if you want to have a thriving local economy, you can't just say, let's grow the big economy and maybe some of the benefit will trickle down. You have to actually grow the economy from the ground up where people live. And there are other values, the principle of community, the principle of inclusion, that that as an economy grows, everyone needs to be included in the benefits because it's all of our work that has created those benefits. Sustainability is another word. Ethical finance, that we need to be investing in a way that's ethical and is not just, again, part of the casino mentality to, to concentrate wealth. And so these are principles that um, we see, not just in theory, but they're playing out all over the country. And the book is the story of very courageous men and women, but people just like ourselves, who are literally taking these principles and building new local economies using them. Right. And that's a, a, an important thing to say about your book, is that it's it's actually a, a, a highly personal book in which uh, nearly every story has, right at the top, a, a story of a person who uh, has managed to create a business of one kind or another that is reflective of these principles, which which brings up the question of, of uh, 
how it's possible for such businesses to be created within a system that isn't uh, a democratic uh, economy. And, uh, and how do you envision us getting from here to there? Uh, is it a matter of, of some grand pronouncement from on high? Or do you feel like from the ground up, uh, our, our economy as it exists today can be incrementally transformed into what you call a democratic economy? Boy, that's the, that's the big question, and I wish we had, we could talk about this all day, but let me say a couple of things. First, um, it's important, I think, that we recognize that the democratic economy that's being built is being built within almost the shell of the current economy. But it's, but it's not right to think of it as very marginal and very niche and really small. In fact, we've done calculation looking at all the different forms of uh, sort of community wealth building democratic economy institutions. And we've come up with figures on the range of about uh, $5 trillion of economic activity in our economy is being generated by this sector. For instance, most people don't know it, but there are something on the order of 10,000 employee-owned companies in the United States now. And in fact, more people in America work for employee-owned companies where they own at least a share of the company and sometimes the workers own 100%. More people work for those companies than are members of private sector unions now. So this is a growing big phenomenon. It's just not getting a lot of attention. And our book is designed, hopefully, to lift up that idea. In terms of how you really move to be something other than an alternative into the mainstream, like imagine the democratic economy was literally the economy we lived in. That's hard for people to get their heads around. And part of the reason there, I think, is because when you live in a system like we do, it's hard to imagine that there can be anything fundamentally different. But honestly, I believe if we had lived, we were having this conversation 3,000 years ago in Pharaoh's Egypt, and you know that lasted for 2,000 years, we would probably always think there are going to be pyramids and sphinxes and priests and pharaohs. And yet now all that's in the British Museum and we study it because systems come and go. At the end of the day, it, it's true, there's going to need to be a, a very significant uh, challenge to concentrated corporate power and the power of the fossil fuel companies and the pharmaceuticals and the Foxcons of the world and so forth. You know about that. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is we need to get our ambition and imagination up. Someone once said, it's easier to imagine the end of our planet than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And that's really the, the case. We can see with climate change, our whole planet could incinerate in the next couple of decades. But the idea that we'd ever live in a system that's a more democratic economy and not dominated by behemoth corporations that aren't loyal to our communities, that, that's almost an unthinkable thought. So, you know, our book's designed to open the imagination by showing real life examples of how this isn't a fairy tale. It's happening right now in the Bronx, in Portland, Oregon, in San Francisco, in Cleveland, Ohio, and many other places all over the country. Hmm. It is a book that gives us a lot to think about, and I encourage people to uh, seek it out. Again, it's titled The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few, published by Barrett Kohler. And uh, one of the authors, Ted Howard. Ted Howard, it was great to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure and uh, wishing all of you in Wisconsin well. You are listening to The Morning Show on WGTD-HD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg, and now an interview that comes from The Morning Show Archive. I suspect that some of you are aware of a magazine called Yes, and uh, you may as well be uh, uh, familiar with the dynamic woman who is behind the creation of that magazine, Sarah Van Gelder. And... uh, She is the author of a new book that chronicles quite an extraordinary journey, which she took, uh, a journey in more ways than one. And the book is called The Revolution Where You Live, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. Sarah Van Gelder has uh, all kinds of grave concerns, really, about uh, the state of our planet and the state of our communities and... uh, believes very strongly that the most lasting and meaningful change for the better comes from the ground up, comes from ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the communities where they live. And that's really what this book is about more than anything, about the difference that can be made uh, at the the grassroots level, as they say, uh, by people not in uh, tall thrones of power, but uh, people who live in their own towns and communities and are working with people they know and live with and live beside and work beside. And uh, she traveled across America to, in a sense, replenish that sense, that understanding of how real change happens, and uh, to replenish her sense of hope that such change is still possible in this world that seems so heavily divided and full of such pain and fear. Uh, Again, she is the founder of Yes! Magazine and the author of this book called The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. Sarah Van Gelder, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. One of the most moving parts of the book is when you, in a sense... Help us understand the sort of disbelief uh, that you had as a young child living at the time in India when you saw suffering and wondered, uh, as in some ways only a child can wonder, how is it that we can allow such suffering to occur? Uh, Just explain briefly to our listeners what you saw on that day when you were just seven years old and uh, the lasting impact of that moment. Yeah, so I was in India with my family. My dad was a professor, so he was teaching there for a year. And I had I had lived up until then in a small town in, in Maryland, and that had been my whole world. So this was this was quite a switch for us. So the day that I wrote about in the book was a day that my family and I 
borrowed one of the Jeeps from the college and went out to have a picnic on a hillside overlooking the, the city, a small city in India. And we spread out our, our picnic and started eating our hard-boiled eggs and, and then noticed that there were all these children who had formed this circle around us who were just sitting there watch, standing, actually, standing and watching us. And it do- gradually dawned on me that these, these kids were, were not, like, curious. They were hungry. And they were like many of the kids I'd seen out on the streets in the city on my way to school every day, kids who were begging instead of going to school, kids who, who didn't have the basic securities that I had, I had taken for granted. And I just remember this, this deep sadness and bewilderment. Why, you know, when, when every day I know I'm going to have enough to eat and I'm going to have a, a bed to sleep in that night, why wasn't that true of these other children who were just like me? And I remember thinking, well, I, you know, I don't understand that now, but when I go home and grow up, I'm going to do my best to understand what's going on and, and how that happened to be. And, and I can't help these children, but I'm going to do my best to shift the circumstances that I have an influence over so that, so that our society is more fair. As you grew up and uh, went through your own studies and, and studied the world also outside of the classroom, so to speak, you really came to a, a firm conviction that, uh, that, that our world, and particularly our country, is based on what you, you like to call an extractive economy. And you see at least most big corporations as, as the real villain here, uh, assuming a, a role that, in a sense, is almost predatory. Uh, I- explain this notion of the extractive economy and the kind of harm which you believe it does. Yeah, we've almost started treating the economy as though it was a, a character in a story that somehow is more important and more powerful than any of us are. And so, yeah, let me give you some examples of of how I see an extractive economy working. When I was in Montana and North Dakota, you know, that's an area that there's this huge amount of mining and fossil fuel extraction going on. And what I saw was the, the people in many of these places I visited, the people in those communities wanted a different kind of economy that they could sustain for generations. I talked to ranchers and I talked to Native people and people in these small towns and small cities, and they wanted an economy that would protect their water and protect their way of life into the future. The outside corporations wanted to come in and extract the coal or extract the fracking gases and use them to make a big profit, but they weren't interested in the long-term well-being of those communities. So extractive is literally in terms of extracting the natural resources of an area in a way that can't be sustained over time. That's different than, than say, farming, where you're ex- certainly you're getting wealth out of the ground, but you're, you're doing it in a way, ideally, you're doing it in a way that you're putting value back into the soil so that it can sustain generations to come. So that's the, the big difference. Is, is it an economy that really supports communities, families, the natural world, or is an economy that is sort of a one-way trip to degradation, you know, that just, that just depletes all of those values. And what I, I don't believe the United States is only an extractive economy. I think we've allowed that part of our economy to get way too powerful. But all over the country, I, I saw people who were very much embodying a very different story, which is uh, what, what I call a cultural culture of connection. 
which is this notion that, that being connected to one another within their families and communities and being connected to the natural world was really where they got their sustenance. As you are describing your, your concerns, uh, as you have just been talking now, you say at one point, when we lose our connections to each other, we lose our power. We believe we can't change things and can't remake our world. Talk a moment about that connection between loss of connection and loss of power, because I don't think those are, th- those are, 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 are matters that, that a lot of us even think of as being all that closely related. You see them as inextricably connected. That's right. Uh, I think about how people, so many people feel helpless and hopeless in, in the face of national politics or in the face of things like global warming. They, they feel like, well, I'm just one small person. What can I do? And I think a lot of us spend a lot of our days in front of a screen, in front of, you know, looking at the Internet or looking at television, hearing big power, what seem like big powerful forces playing out and feeling all alone, like, what, what can I possibly do against that? And what I saw on my road trip was when people got together, even in pretty small groups, when people got together and said, well, not, not what can I do, but what can we do together? And instead of feeling like they had to try to take on the entire world or the entire country, if they said, what can we do here, they found that there was a lot that they could do. And one of the interesting things that I that I discovered as I traveled was that when people got together like that, you know, I, I, I heard lots of people in, in the past say, oh, you know, community work is a, is a drag and you have to go to meetings and it's so time-consuming. But what I actually saw when I, when I watched people coming together and doing all sorts of great work is the enormous joy it unleashed. People were having fun. They were, you know, even if they were making signs for a social justice protest in Detroit or if they were having a, a harvest celebration in a small farm in Kentucky, you know, they were having fun. They were just, there was something about being together and especially being together across the normal divides where people could get to know someone who's a little different than themselves and discover that the world was, was wider and more diverse and more interesting than they might have thought. We're speaking with Sarah Van Gelder, and we're talking about a book that she has just written called The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. Uh, it is, as you just said, a, a, a journey that takes you through some places experiencing deep pain, and yet in so many respects it's a really joyous journey because you are encountering people uh, energetically working to make a difference for the better. I think it's important for our our listeners to understand, however, that in a sense, it was the encroachment of maybe not quite despair, but something resembling despair that, that prompted you to take this trip. I mean, despair or certainly a deep sense of fear and foreboding when you looked at what you saw as kind of an, a process of unraveling in terms of our of our overall uh, nation and and world just say a word about these kind of fears and concerns that that ultimately prompted you to take this extraordinary 12,000 mile trip 
Yeah, so we started yes 20 years ago with the same basic concerns and and you know some people some people assume that we're just because we're named ha- yes that we're just basically a happy publication but we we were founded 20 years ago because we were deeply concerned about some of the same questions and those include things like climate change because the science is really clear on just how devastating that process will be to all of us if we don't get a handle on it and it's not just that a few people who live along the coastlines are going to have, you know, have to deal with uh, sea level rise. It's that our entire system of agriculture can be jeopardized as soils dry out and turn into deserts. You know, it's a, it's uh, erratic, uh, erratic storms, and and um, because we're so many people, so many billions of people relying on a stable system of agriculture, we're really quite vulnerable. So many people believe the war in Syria, for example, was exacerbated by the effects of drought related to climate change. We're, we're prone to see more of that. So one of the questions I had was, you know, is there anything we can do about that? We've been looking at this at a global level. We've been looking at it nationally. Is there something locally that perhaps is, is a source of more hope than what we've been seeing on the other scales, because things continue to move forward at even a more rapid clip than the scientific models had predicted. So climate change was one thing I was very concerned about. Another was poverty and inequality. And certainly my sensitivity comes out of my experience in India, but it's very much informed by the experience of people in our own country as well. There are just so many people now who are feeling really insecure. Many of them are working, if they are working, are working multiple jobs. Other people can't find a job at all. The the statistics look better because the unemployment rates have come down, and yet so many people are left out. And even those who are nominally included don't know when they might get laid off or lose their health insurance. So the enormous insecurity um, is, is a second issue. And the third that I was looking at was racism, because I think there was a hope when President Obama took office that somehow we might have gotten beyond our racist legacy, our legacy of, of exclusion of, of people of color and especially African Americans. And yet that was clearly not the case. The, the, the killings by police and the, uh, the hardship that, that African Americans continue to experience just makes it really clear that that the uh, that, that we're a long way from being an equitable society. So there too, I had had some moment, some experiences in my own community. I live on a reservation, and we had done some work as we we'd formed a group here to work against some really vicious anti-Indian groups that had developed in our region. And we'd had some success. We'd had some success in terms of of building a different sort of atmosphere and a different sort of set of relationships. And I thought, well, I wonder if if there are other communities around the country that are also taking on racism where they live and finding a different way of of having their, their communities understand their own diverse communities and understand how to get along better. So that was the third area that I was looking at. So yeah, in all three cases, I feel like there were these were issues that we we were really stuck on as a society, and I wanted to see if communities had some good ideas that we ought to be learning from. And we should probably clarify that uh, unlike some such journeys in which somebody just hops in their car or hops in their truck and just takes off and sees where the road leads them and then chronicles the stories that unfold in 
in quite an unpredictable fashion. I don't think that's what this trip was. As you embarked on this journey, you had a very specific sense, or a fairly specific sense at least, of some places you wanted to visit, and in a sense of some inspiring success stories at the local level that you wanted to witness firsthand. How how did you construct this itinerary? I had an idea of the different parts of the country I wanted to get to. I knew I wanted to spend time in the mountain or in plains of the northwest and west and learn about fossil fuel extraction. I wanted to spend time in Rust Belt cities and find out what was happening to their economies. And I wanted to spend time along the eastern seaboard in the south in Appalachia and see what was happening in terms of questions of racism. And what I found, of course, is that all of those were mixed up. People were working on all of those issues all over the country. So it was, a, it was a general itinerary. I had a few leads because after doing Yes Magazine for this long, I know people in, in all parts of the country, but not, not that many. A lot of the people who I saw I had never met before. Many of them were people who were referred to me by somebody else I met on the trip, or they were people who got on my social media. I was blogging as I went, and I'd say, well, who should, you know, where should I go next? I'm, here's where I am right now. Who else should I see? And people would say, oh, come visit us, and here's what we can introduce you to. So it was a combination of those th- those things. So in some ways, I was allowing what I learned as I traveled to define what I would learn about next. I also didn't set myself a schedule. I didn't say, I will be in this place at this time. And that allowed me to spend more time in places. If I was continuing to learn new things, I could... I could stay there until I until I felt like I'd got the story. If there was something that you know, if I was basically done, I could take off and go to the next place that, that I had discovered might be might be interesting to visit. So mm-hmm. it was a lovely combination of, of a little bit of planning, help from help from people I didn't know who who just kind of helped me crowdsource the trip, and help from some longtime friends. And part of what you dis- one facet of the of the trip that you just described is a nice example of what you term at one point slow journalism. <laughs> and, of course, we probably don't have enough slow journalism in the world right now, but uh, this sense of, of, of remaining in place long enough to really get a deep sense of what is happening here and how is it happening and, uh, and what kind of difference are people making Towards that end of slow journalism, tell our listeners uh, about the interesting vehicle in which you made this 12,000-mile journey, and, and I'm talking especially about how it was painted. Right. So I, I got a little pickup truck and then decided to get a little camper to, to put in the bed of the pickup truck so I'd have a place to stay even in, in the most remote parts of the country. And uh, so I got found this little tiny camper. Um, and decided to ask some of my native artist friends to paint it. Actually, I asked one, one young woman to paint it because I, I admire her art. Her name is Kate Avakana. And so she, she had an idea of what she wanted to do. But at the time, she was dating another artist by the name of Toma Via, and he's more of a muralist. So between the two of them, they decided to turn the entire back of the camper into a giant snail shell. So if you look at it from the side, it looks like a big spiral snail shell. If you look at it from the front, it has this beautiful moon-shaped face um, that Kate describes as being like Mother Earth, as well as some 
some images from the canoes because I, I travel with the tribe on the canoe journey every year. So she she painted some some images from the of the canoes and the paddles. And then on the back, they decided to use some of the plants from home as a stencil. So they used cedar and ferns and spray painted around them and created this beautiful stenciled version of what some of the greenery around here looks like. So it was a lot of fun to travel, and it felt like I was bringing part of home with me as I as I went, and it was a great conversation starter as well. Mm. As we look at the map, and of course as we read the book, um, one of the things that is especially striking about your, your uh, journey is that you, for instance, began in uh, began in Montana, uh, meeting some of the people who were trying to resist the opening of a new coal mine. You were in rural North Dakota, uh, talking to people who were confronting the uh, the uh, the presence of fracking. But before too long, you you were in the city of Chicago, and eventually you were in the city of Newark, New Jersey. And then eventually you were in Appalachia. And it's really striking to me how how this journey took you into such vastly different sorts of places. I mean, from, from places of, 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 of vast, uh, in a sense, openness and spaciousness uh, to, to the sort of oppressive crowdedness of, 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 of cities. And I wonder what that was like for you to be taking a trip, uh, not only in which you were visiting all kinds of, of, of suffering and concerns, but also in this sort of bewildering array of different landscapes. Uh, ultimately, what did that feel like to take a trip uh, through so many different kinds of places? Well, it reminded me of what one of the things I love about our country is just how diverse it is and how spectacular it is. I, I had driven across the country before, but I'd been in a hurry, so I'd stayed on the freeways, and I found a good part of the middle of the country, frankly, boring. And this time I got off of the freeways, and I got to explore the smaller communities and explore the back roads, and I found the entire country fascinating and beautiful and, and just soul-nourishing. I was, I was really stunned by that. I really did expect there to be large stretches where I was going to be bored, and that never happened to me. The other thing is that that um, there there are places, as you mentioned, I visited Newark, New Jersey, and Chicago, and there there are cities that are frankly intimidating to me because of their size and how crowded they are, and because of because of crime and because of impoverishment and, and everything that goes with that. And so, you know, I expected to be a little intimidated, and and I was as I entered some of those places. But what I found was that people in those communities also love their place. I tell a story in the book about visiting Newark, New Jersey, where there's a new mayor who has who has put a real emphasis on a couple of the most impoverished neighborhoods in his city, neighborhoods that had been neglected for for decades. And one of the first things he did is commission some murals to be done in those communities to to signal that they matter and that their their way of life and their quality of life matters. On one of those murals, I saw this phrase, we the people love this place, and then nearby, in fact, we the people call this place our home. And I remember just feeling 
Oh, yeah, of course. This is where people grew up, too, and they had their children and, and generations have lived here, and this is where they make their home, and they're committed to its well-being, and they love it. Yes. And that, that was kind of eye-opening for me because it, it helped me to understand not only the power that we have when we work locally, but what the source of that power is. And, and a lot of that power comes from how much we love a place and how, much, how committed we are to its well-being, because that's, that's where we're going to live our lives and that's where our children are going to live, too. Mm. Does that happen very differently in uh, the heart of Chicago, Illinois, or Newark, New Jersey, versus uh, in a tiny town in rural Appalachia or on an Indian reservation in Montana? Uh, or is it essentially the same thing, just playing out in completely different places with, in a sense, completely different details? But in a sense, is it just many chapters of the very same story? Or are all of these, in a sense, very unique stories that each play out, in, in a sense, in, in different ways? Well, of course, there's tremendous variety Part of it is because of, of you know, is, is the place more, more natural landscape or is it more paved and, and buildings? Is it a place where people have lived for generations or is it a place where people have come and gone fairly quickly? And another question <clears throat> that, that creates a, a real difference is, is it, is it a place where, where people are feeling that it's, on the decline, or is it rising up? Is it getting um, stronger? Uh, one of the things I was struck by in rural America is how many communities feel abandoned. That the, the, having corporate farming come in has displaced a lot of farmers and, and the whole corporate agriculture system, so that they're depopulated. Young people don't have a, a way to come back and stay, so they they tend to take off, and and the the towns feel kind of sad and abandoned. So that's, that's another question. Are people finding a way to stay? So the thing that they have in common, I think, is that sense that when they're really working, it's because people are communicating and connecting with one another. And when they're really working, it's because they're connecting with the physicality of their place, whether that's a, an urban neighborhood or whether it's a natural landscape. Mm. That kind of connection seems to me to be what makes the difference. Right. So, for example, in that little town in, in Appalachia I visited, the young people there are gathering together and trying to find a way to make it work for other young people so that other young people don't leave, so that there's enough of an economy that can keep people there. And there's enough of a nightlife so that they feel like there's a place they can gather. And there's enough tolerance of the diversity among them that they feel comfortable being there. So that kind of connection among themselves is what they feel allows them to, to feel really connected to their community and then to make it work for other people to be there as well. So that, that was really a theme, and that was what I was, I was trying to find that theme as I traveled, and that was one that just kept coming back. Right. So the heart and soul of your book then uh, takes us on the journey with you as you visit all of these uh, various different places from Greensboro, North Carolina to uh, 
to Prospect, Kentucky, to the heart of Detroit, uh, uh, learning again and again this inspiring story of what you call place-based work. And, uh, and your book ends with uh, a list that I just love, 101 Ways to Reclaim Local Power. You start this by saying there are no one-size-fits-all ways to build communities. Uh, instead, many, many approaches exist, any one of which can make a difference. That's probably a truth that is worth stating and restating again and again, because sometimes in our zeal, we can forget that, that, uh, that perhaps the best solution uh, in this case is not my solution, but maybe someone else's solution or some combination of the two. That's right. I think communities, when people get together in their community, they know what's best for their community. So that's that's definitely what I wanted to encourage. And the list is made up of things that, that I discovered on the trip and also from editing Yes Magazine, things that people have done and that, that do make a difference. But people know where their own community is and what the next the next appropriate step, which ones feel right to them and which ones don't. So, you know, some of them I think are, are pretty safe to say are worth doing, like like uh, intergenerational um, communication. You know, get to know the young people in your neighborhood, in your community, find out if they plan to stay in the area and what would make it possible for them to stay, and what they would like to offer to the community as well. So that's kind of a universal in the sense of of the intergenerational possibilities. Other things may be different. One of the items is offer translation at community events. If you have an immigrant population that is has a different first language than English, that can be a really important way to include them. In another community, everyone may be very comfortable with English, so that may not be necessary. But those are the sorts of things. Some of them are, are some of the things on this list are you know take a lot of work. They would involve starting a whole new institution, for example, an incubator for small businesses, so that you can do. You can develop the economy of your community rather than trying to bring in a big corporation that might offer jobs but then leave a few years later. You can develop the economy given the the strengths and the entrepreneurial talent you already have through building an incubator for for small businesses to get going. So that that takes a fair amount of work. Another thing might be super simple, like when you go outside, take the time to say hello to people as you walk by. Just that is enough for somebody, some people who are who are isolated, to, well, to start feeling that they have some kind of connection. Right, and of course, the first part of that suggestion is walk. <laughs> Don't drive to some place. Walk someplace. It gives you the opportunity to uh, say hello to uh, other people in the community. I mean, it can begin with something as simple as that. Uh, the book is again the revolution where you live. Stories from a twelve thousand mile journey through a new America, uh, published by Barrett Kohler and the author Sarah Van Gelder. And you can also visit the very colorful, dynamic website of Yes Magazine. And uh, you can see Sarah Van Gelder's blog there and uh, the contributions of other thoughtful writers as well. Again, this book called The Revolution Where You Live. Sarah Van Gelder, thank you for your time and thank you for your good work. Thank you so much for having me.